Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1099, air date August 30th, 2022. Good evening, everyone. It's Dr. Shiva Ayadure. It's late in the evening today on Tuesday, August 30th, uh, 2022. I wanted to do this broadcast um, for uh, not only the U.S. audience here on the East Coast, but also to make it accessible to the audience on the West Coast and also globally in Asia and um, other parts which are waking up. But anyway, today is the anniversary of the invention of email. It's actually the 40th anniversary. So on August 30th, 1982, the United States government recognized me as the inventor of email officially by awarding me the first United States copyright for email at a time when copyright was the only way to protect software inventions. So tonight, what we're going to do is I'm going to share with you the journey of that 14-year-old boy um, in 1978 when he began the invention of email and then till when he got his copyright in 1982, when I uh, came to MIT, was a 17-year-old. But you're going to share the journey. Um, so as people are coming in, let me just introduce different people that are joining. We have uh, people, uh, Lee Asia says, Namaste. Hello from Alberta, Canada. Uh, we have um, uh, Robin Doyle saying, hey, Dr. Shiva, Florida, congratulations. Someone says, wow. And um, thank you very much. Yes, it is a celebration. And I think the main thing we're going to understand is why it's a celebration. And this talk today is going to um, definitely inspire you. It's going to anger you when I walk you through uh, how when the facts of this invention came out, the effects that it had on uh, those in power, particularly the woke, quote unquote, woke liberal elites. And we'll talk about that because I think it's important for everyone to understand the political dynamics. And then we'll bring it to today and what this means to you. And particularly if you have a child, what it means to not only your child, but every child, um, what the invention of email means. And we'll also emphasize, I'll share with you a piece of writing that was done recently that will also share with you why it's important that the invention of email and the true history of it be shared broadly. Some from Ohio, Star Gonzalez, nice to have you. Canada, um, Keswick Ridge, great to have you. From uh, Indiana. Uh, from Alberta, Canada. Very nice to have you. So we're going to discuss that. So um, first, we're going to discuss the invention of email. We're then going to go into um, how this came out into the public, because I didn't really promote it when I was a kid, and the circumstance of how it came out. Then we're going to talk about how after it came out, the reaction by those in power and then we're going to dissect that to understand what I call the real racism. There is a racism in the world. The liberal elites uh, just make it about color, and it isn't. The real racism is far deeper. And the those in power do not want to talk about the real racism. They rather talk about black and white. And because of that, what happens is that um, that uh, phenomenon um, makes it possible for people not to get to the underlying issues, the monetary issues, the class issues, and the issues that really affect the broad majority of people beyond black and white. 
So we're going to really redefine racism too. what it really is. We we're going to use a word and we're going to take it away from the woke liberal elites who for far too long have misused it. And they think by doing certain perfunctory things, they get rid of racism and they haven't. So we're going to really talk about what is racism. We'll also find out that just because you're brown or black doesn't mean you're not racist. In fact, um, some of the deeper racism actually comes from your own quote unquote people um, because it's hard for them to believe because of their own oppression that um, someone among them, a kid either from a ghetto or a kid, either, a kid either from their own surroundings could actually invent something like email. But the bottom line is that when it comes to the invention of email, the facts aren't even gray. They're black and white that I as a 14 year old boy invented email. So we're going to walk through that. Okay, so let's begin. So the slide says that on the 40th anniversary, the true story of the 14-year-old child inventor of email, what it means to you and your child, innovation anytime, anyplace by anybody. We started a little late, so I apologize for that. So let's begin. By the way, that picture that you see is a picture of me when I was a, a very young kid. Um, and behind that is the actual code. And you'll notice it says program email, okay? Um, Sam says, thank you so much for inventing email. This transformed the dynamics of communication, saves a lot of trees since it reduced the felling of trees. Yeah. So let's begin. So to give you some of these slides that I've shared before, but let's just begin. Many of you know that I was actually born in India as uh, in 1963, on December 2nd, 1963, in the state of Maharashtra, which is on the West Coast. It's really like the California of India, meaning it's where Bollywood is. Um, but I grew up in pretty humble circumstances. And the India I grew up in was an India, as we'll talk about, that was a relatively segregated India, but also uh, in terms of the caste system, but it was also, India is a place of contradictions, but also pretty integrated India in terms of you had all different castes, all different religions, all living very, very closely together, okay? And so, and by the way, you can see here, the, this would be sort of still is typical scene in India. You have all different modes of transport. You have a cycle rickshaw, you have people walking on their feet, you have a van, you have buffalo carts, but um, you have this range of diversity in India. And so I grew up with this kind of diversity, but the, this was a city, in, in um, the typical cityscape in, in Bombay. But I also had another experience because my grandparents were poor village farmers. So on the summers, um, three, sometimes four months, I would spend, um, someone uh, says, um, I'm from Tamil Nadu, so he says, you're a great Tamilian. Great, nice to have you. Um, but I also grew up in this kind of circumstance, which is a very different world, which was a land of my grandparents. And this world was a land of emerald green fields. Uh, and I just recently visited back there and you had this kind of scenery of these temples and my grandmother and my grandparents were poor village farmers. And it was a typical scene to see my grandmother out there uh, in the in the cot in the rice fields uh, planting rice. And this was her picture of her Sunday best. And um, separate from being a farmer, my grandmother was a local village shaman. One of the things you need to understand is in these poor villages in India, there's not like doctors, medically trained doctors wanna go there and serve. So you typically have what are called Naktavaidam, which means local, Vaidya means healing methods, right? Nakta means forest methods. So my grandmother had studied these techniques from yogis and different P 
people who came through the village and should learn them. And, um, and, and there's a system, ancient system of Indian medicine called um, online call. Thank you very much. Super Stricker, thank you very much. That will go to our Truth Freedom Health movement. And um, by the way, you see the little ticker running, truthfreedomhealth.com. I encourage all of you to go check out that website. Truth Freedom Health is a new system I recently created. It too is an invention. Unlike email, which made our lives easier and in some ways, um, some people say, you know, I want to kill you for inventing email. But Truth Freedom Health is a system we'll talk about, which enables you to get smarter and wiser about what's going on around you. But anyway, my grandmother, as a healer, having studied these ancient systems of medicine, she could observe your face and she could figure out what was going on inside of your body. Now, this science, which comes from the ancient system of Indian medicine, was called Samudrika Lakshanam. Lakshanam in Tamil means face. So she could observe your face and figure out specifically what was going on inside your body because in these Indian systems of medicine, the face um, was used to really represent everything that was going on in your body, the different organ systems, et cetera, as above, so below. And so that system of medicine had a lingua franca, a language that looks like this. You had, um, I'm not gonna go through all of it. If you take our course, Truth From Health or the system science course, you'll learn more about this, but there's a concept of the nothingness, purusha on the bottom here, which gives rise to prakriti which is everything we see around us, which gives rise to the subtle energies, which gives rise to the five elements over here, and these different doshas, which, which control the tissues in you and then manifest you. But bottom line is, this is a very different system of medicine. And even though most of the Westerners um, would not be able to appreciate this, or in fact, Western medical doctors poo-poo this, but this science of medicine is what my grandmother practiced. And I saw her heal many, many people using this systems approach. So I was fascinated as a child, how was my grandmother able to do this? So that was one of my motivating interests um, to understand medicine. The other aspect that I wanna also share with you is growing up that village and growing up in India, I was also aware of this thing called the Indian caste system, okay? Um, and it still exists. Most people don't wanna talk about it, but the caste system, is basically, it's based on the birth lottery. Your birth determines your trajectory to success. If you're born into this particular family, you will uh, be restricted to doing this particular job. Now, there were some significant gains that started occurring in the 60s and 80s as people started, 70s as people started fighting against this. Uh, my parents were quite fortunate to have broken from this and it was a one in a trillion chance that they actually came to the United States. But the caste system is literally this pyramid hierarchy. And I want to explain this because it'll connect with some of the lessons we're going to talk about the invention of email. At the top of this caste system were the quote unquote, the thinkers, the people who supposedly had a direct connection to God, the quote unquote, the priesthood, the Brahmins. The next level were the kings. Modern world, it would be the politicians, right? By the way, the top people would be the academics and the quote unquote scholars today places like Harvard, MIT, these institutions. Then you had the politicians who they advised, and then you had the military, um, and then you had the business folks, and they had the rest of us who were known as shudras, okay, the lower caste, and they too were further divided, but it was the caste system. So I grew up in this world being exposed to the system of medicine, ancient system of medicine, and fascinated how my grandmother who had no degrees, wasn't from that upper caste, was able to heal people, 
but I was also fascinated by why there was injustice. Why when my grandma, when my mother went to the well, um, she said she would be shooed away. Why when I was a child around four or five years old, I went to a friend's home and his mother would not let me come in and gave me water in a different class glass and called me a shudra. All these things were deeply moving emotionally as I started unraveling this as a kid. I was a child. So those two things were some of the very interesting motivating factors. So in 1970, uh, December 2nd, on my seventh birthday, my parents were, again, very hardworking people. My, my mother came from a very interesting background from a broken home. So she grew up to stand on her own two feet. My dad had grown up, grown up in war-torn Burma, but somehow they met. And because of their will and their resilience, they made it to the United States, literally a one in a trillion opportunity. And this is a picture of my family right before we left India. And when we came to the United States um, in 1970, I, for the first time I saw, uh, you know, we moved, first of all, by the way, let me explain to Patterson, New Jersey, this is 1970. Most of you will remember 1970, the Vietnam War is still going on. Uh, it's the age of segregation in the United States still. It's the age of bell bottoms, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, literally. So this very traditional Indian family moves from India and lands in one of the poorest cities in the United States called Patterson, New Jersey. But to us, it was like India, Bombay, frankly. We didn't, I didn't know any difference. It was sort of wild and colorful. And my parents realized that the educational system of the United States was governed by where you lived. So whatever money they would made, made they would save it. And then we moved from Patterson uh, the next year to a place called um, Clifton, which was a sort of an integrated working class neighborhood, and then to Persephone. And then finally, my last years to Livingston High School, which is predominantly all Jewish, a very wealthy neighborhood. Um, so my, for ninth, uh, sorry, 10th, 11th, and 12th. So my parents wanted us to have uh, even better access. So that was sort of how my parents worked. So this, so, um, this is a picture of me um, uh, around, you know, in the teenage years. And my mother was a fascinating woman. She and both my mother and my father were always very, very insistent on education. Now, a few, I think, months before that picture was taken, I had gone to India, or I think a year before I'd gone to India. And after being in the United States for five years, that was 19, I think, 70. Uh, five. And so I had, I was about 12 years old. And when I went back to India, back to that village is when I was able to realize it sort of dawned on me, this vast difference between this village where my grandparents were, where they, you know, my aunt lived in a hut, you know, dirt roads, they don't have shoes, uh, how hard they worked. And the United States, which had roads and highways and infrastructure and all the stuff. That's when sort of it dawned on me the, the stark differences in how the world was. So when I left India that summer after visiting my grandparents and my grandparents came to see me off at the old caboose railroad station, I realized the immense opportunity that I would have going back to the United States. And, I, and, and they were crying and I was crying because we had such a deep love and a bond with each other that I realized that I should really do something of significance, at least to work hard at minimum because of all the opportunities I had in one day I could potentially help not only them, but all people who came from these very hardworking backgrounds. And it really set the trajectory of my life at the age of 12. 
My grandparents had also taught me how to meditate, which means sit quietly, observe inside, set your goals, envision things, and how to work hard. So when I came back in 1975 um, to the United States, I was very, very motivated to work hard. And by the time I was 13, I had finished. Um, I worked very hard. Well, oh, by the way, I wasn't just a nerd. I played uh, uh, soccer as well as baseball. I was a pitcher, but I was. I also worked hard in academics. I finished calculus by the age of 13. And my high school had no other math courses to give me. I had to, in fact, go to the high school. In fact, as a junior high school student, I had to go to the high school. However, my dear mom, um, who's right there, had seen uh, a little article a friend had given her. Uh, and it said, if you can read it, it says, Mina, I thought you might like this. It was from her friend Marty. And it was the article was, New York University invites high school students. And this was a very interesting article. It came out in a local newspaper in New York. Uh, New York, and the article was really about a professor at New York University by the name of Henry Mullis. This is, by the way, 1977, 78, when a computer would fill up, you know, several thousand square feet, big, big mainframe computers. Today, our small handhelds have more power, thousands of times more power than those mainframes. But anyway, um, Henry Mullish, who was a professor at NYU, had realized that the future trajectory of the United States to be competitive was to start training software engineers, a very new concept in 77, 78. And he had gotten a grant to select 40 students out of the entire United States who would go through a competitive selection process and get the opportunity to go to NYU. So my mom's friend had given her this New York, uh, I mean, this clipping because he knew I was getting bored. I didn't have any other challenges in high school at the time in terms of mathematics. So um, what ended, that's, you can see March of 78. So I applied for that um, scholarship, that program. And by the way, that program was only open. You had to be, um, I think, 15 or older. And I was 14 or 13 or 14. Anyway, I was fortunate to apply and get accepted. And um, 40 students were accepted to this special program. And you have to understand, um, remember, I'm 14 years old and I have to get to New York City and go there regularly. This is an intensive, um, you know, three-month computer science program where you go from 8 a.m. all the way to 8 p.m. It's an immersive program where you learn seven or eight different computer languages, digital electronics theory, all of this in a very, very reduced time frame. So... Um, how did I get to New York? And by the way, most parents today, as I've mentioned, are even afraid to send their kids down the street today. My my uh, my mom and uh, I guess being risk takers coming all the way to the United States. So my mom would drop me off in Newark. This was the called the PATH trains. And I would Port Authority uh, Trans Hudson system. And I would take it all the way into um, New York, into uh, what's called uh, NYU. And you have to understand, as you walk through the park, which is called Washington Park in NYU, people would be trying to sell you drugs, lots and lots of crime. The first day I'm in New York, people come busting out of a uh, jewelry store, three guys who had just stolen it. So that was a scene in New York for a 14-year-old kid. And this was NYU in those days, okay? So as a 14-year-old boy, I'm going back and forth to NYU, studying very hard, and a African-American gentleman sees me on the train and he says, hey, you know, you, you got to be, 
you need a bodyguard. And he was a big uh, iron factory or a bronze factory worker who worked in a bronze factory where he used to do molds. And he ended up becoming a very close family friend. His name was Jenkins. And um, so he, he would make sure he sort of supervised me in going on the trains back and forth. Regardless, I went to NYU and this is, and I went, um, this is actually the building. It's the Corant Institute of Mathematical Sciences. The Corant Institute of Mathematical Sciences is still today in the world, one of the leading institutes for computer science and mathematics. So at that institute is where I learned seven different programming languages, digital theory, what, you know, what people learn in graduate level, undergraduate levels at places like MIT. So I was given this intensive and at the end of it, um, at the end of it, I uh, graduated top of the class. And these were the lecture halls where we would get uh, these sessions. And you can see that certificate on August 11, 1978. Uh, this is certified that the above named student, Shivaya Duray, um, passed with distinction. In fact, I passed at the top of the class, in fact, won several awards. So out of the 40 kids out of the entire United States who was selected, I was the top kid the only Indian kid uh, from New Jersey. So anyway, so that was my experience in getting all this training. So it's an immersive training. By the way, when you go to the truthfreedomhealth.com system, I'm a big believer that when you learn, you learn an immersion. Um, you're better off learning things in a short period rather than spending three years on it. That's why I believe the entire undergraduate education colleges is sort of dumb. It's basically to go party and get wasted. It's really not about learning. You, know, you could probably learn all of that in probably about six months. So anyway, I had all this knowledge. I had learned how to program and I come back to um, high school, um, junior high, high school, and I have humanities classes to finish. And what do I do with my time? Because there's really not any math classes I can take. So there is an extraordinary woman in our public school system. By the way, I didn't go to private school. My parents can afford it. it's all public schools. Her name was Stella Oleksiak, a woman. And this again brings a sense of activism here uh, to, the, to the point here where, you know, I'm a 14 year old kid and I had gotten through my mom had introduced me to a professor at Rutgers Medical School, what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. At that time, it was known as the University of Medicine Dentistry in Newark, New Jersey. So Livingston is here. Newark is about um, 30 miles away, my high school and where this university is, and it was in the heart of one of the poorest cities in the United States called Newark, New Jersey, predominantly African-American. Um, most white people are afraid to go into Newark. But in that medical college, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Michelson had offered me an opportunity to work there, to use my computer skills to do research in medicine and information technology. So, but how would I get, get there? I was a 14 year old kid. So this woman, Stella Alexiak, was a teacher in independent studies fought with the principal who wouldn't agree, raised it up to the Board of Education Superintendent of Schools and got the right for me to travel in the middle of high school to have a full-time job as a research fellow. So I was appointed as a research fellow at the University of Medicine and Dentistry. And I'll show you some pictures there with a full-time job. So, and this is that university at that time. And this is Newark, New Jersey over here. Okay, this is in the 70s. And the opportunity I was going to be given was to use my skills in programming 
to do initially medical research. And the medical research I was given the opportunity to do, some of you may know of a horrible disease that hits kids called sudden infant death syndrome. And the idea was that I would apply the data that we would get on baby sleep patterns. Um, one of the researchers at the school, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Swami Lakshmi Narayanan had gotten access to baby sleep patterns and, and when a baby would stop breathing, that's called an apnea, sudden infant death syndrome. So using all of that data, Sid, someone just said, yeah, um, using all of that data, the idea was, could I use computer algorithms to watch the sleep pattern and detect, was there a particular pattern before the baby stopped breathing? And if I could do that, then what, the found, what, what, the, what people found was if you shake the baby's cradle, you can get it out of that breathing pattern. So anyway, I was doing research on that, in fact, went on to publish a paper um, many years later, which I presented in Finland. But this research, again, was done before I came to MIT at a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey. So keep that in mind, Newark, New Jersey, all right? So as I was progressing, this people knew I had some very good programming skills. So Dr. Michelson also identified another project for me. Now you have to understand, let me give you sort of the setting of 1970s. Anyone over the age of 40 will remember in the 70s, right? 60s, 70s, um, in a medical college like this or any type of large scale organization, whether you're in the office of the president or you were in a small corporation or large institutions, that these organizations had an environment where it's typically run by men. In those days, what was the job a woman could do? A woman could essentially do one of four things. She could be a nurse, she could be a secretary, she could be a potentially a teacher um, or a housewife, okay? Those were sort of the four jobs a woman can do. So in these institutions like this medical college, there were lots of women, either nurses or secretaries. And in an institution like this medical college, where it was a building, right? There were lots and lots of offices. The doctors were the top of the heap on the top of that caste system, okay? And surgeons were very high, okay? Hospital administrators, et cetera. And these medical colleges always had offices where a doctor had his office and he would, a researcher and he would have a secretary. And there were, and typically the secretary's desktop looked like this, okay? And you have to understand that there were two modes of communication in this environment, okay? Two ways to communicate. One way of communicating was through the phone, right? And it wasn't a cell phone, it was a physical landline phone. The other way was through paper. People used to write memos on paper, okay? They would write memos on paper. And, sorry, let me put up a nice little piece of paper, paper, okay? And that paper, was used to write what was called the proverbial memo or the memorandum. And I'll show you an example of one. And how were these memos written and distributed, uh, et cetera, was through what was called the inter-office mail system, inter-office mail system. So you had the phone that Dr. A could call Dr. B, and the other was the inter-office mail system. And the commander of this inter-office mail system in every office was the secretary. And you can see in the secretary's desk, she has folders behind her, big file folders, okay? She has an inbox, an outbox. Sometimes there was also a drafts folder typically, paper clips, 
uh, over on her desk is a stapler. She typically had white out and she's in front of her typewriter. And she typically also had carbon paper and you know physical paper. The carbon paper was if you had to do a copy, she would put a white paper in, put a carbon paper and put another white paper and she'd type, she'd get to uh, the original and a copy. That was called a carbon copy, CC. All right, so when a doctor wanted to communicate with another doctor, let's say they were gonna hire somebody, he would go over to the secretary and hover over and he'd say, okay, Alice, take a note. And he'd say, to, from, here's the subject. And by the way, carbon copy CC our HR uh, director and also blind copy my boss and attach the resume of the prospective candidate we're gonna hire and send it to Dr. X. And the secretary would then proceed to draft up a memo, okay? And the memo literally looked like this structure. It'd be a bunch of plus signs, memorandum. I just gave an example of, um, you know, my principal at the school is known as Alan Berlin, Stella Alexiak, but you can see CC, BCC, date, subject. Um, and this would be a memo, okay? And you would en enclose attachment. And this memo was put into these inter-office mail envelopes, okay? And, in, and those envelopes were then sent throughout these pneumatic tubes. This was like the quote unquote ethernet before ethernet, okay? So the memo was sent throughout these pneumatic tubes. And so if, by the way, let me just make a point. If the secretary had to CC, let's say 10 people, she would literally be typing a memo like five to six times, right? Making multiple copies. And so it was a very, very arduous process. And by the way, in this inner office mail system, you there were many, many features. So let me go back to this and let me show you all the features of this inner office mail system that were enveloped in there. It wasn't just a simple system, okay? You had many, many features and I had to, so as a kid, my job Michelson gave me was, could you take this entire system? Now you have to understand in those days, in those big mainframes, mainframe one operator could send a simple text message to mainframe operator two. Very short messages, like you would do text messaging. It's not what we're talking about. Here, we wanted to take that entire inner office mail system, which consisted, as you can see here, I'm gonna show you the entire feature of that inner office mail system, which consisted of this, all of these features, okay? Let me zoom in a little bit. So I made a list as a child of all of those features. You had to have the inbox, the outbox, the drafts, the memo, the attachments, folders. They wanted to be able to compose a memo, forward, reply, the address book. There were groups in that medical college right here, okay? Groups meaning doctors groups, surgeon groups, uh, pharmacology groups, return receipt, sorting, send, receive. You have to be able to scan. All this was done in the physical world, edit, broadcast. Sometimes they would send one letter to lots and lots of people, sending a memo to a group, deleting, purging, so on, carbon copies, blind carbon copies. So you see, this was all the functions of the inter-office mail system of that time. And if you're looking at this, and if you're under the age of 40, you'll say, wow, that looks a lot like email. Well, it was. And I was asked to convert that entire system, all of those features in the physical form into the electronic form as a 14 year old kid. Now, before I started working on this project and at the school, you have to understand Dr. Michelson was very professional with me. He said, look, we're giving you an opportunity to work here. 
and we're going to treat you like an adult. You have to show up to work on time. You have to punch in on time. You have to put in a full day's work. You have to report properly. You have to dress properly. And I did all those things. So I learned a lot. I was working with people who are minimum 50 years older than me. Okay. 50, sorry, 40 to 50 years older than me. So here I'm a 14 year old kid. You're dealing with people in their 50s and 60s. And these are eminent physicists, some of them who worked on the Manhattan Project, right? Very smart people. Okay. But I was given this incredible opportunity, probably only could have occurred in the United States at the time. So I'm very grateful for that. And the job was to convert this entire system, 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 I have to use that word, to produce an electronic version of that. Okay. Um, and I had to do this in a, pro in a programming language called Fortran. And the machinery we had was a Hewlett Packard mainframe systems, which only had 8,000 kilobytes of memory. Okay. Kilobytes, not megabytes, kilobytes, 8,000. So I had to write all of this code would capture all those features. And I got to understand the secretaries who were my customers, these women who I became very close with, they're very wonderful people. They were, they were, they were my uh, partners. The doctors, actually, the surgeons would say, oh, why do you need email? It's not going to go anywhere. I could just talk to my secretary. We don't need any of this stuff, right? So they were really against me building this email system. And, but the secretaries were excited because you have to understand there was a huge segregation, quote unquote, a racism there. Who used computers in those, those days? It was really old white men. By the way, nothing against white people. Please don't take it the wrong way, but that was a fact. In fact, white men who wore shirts and ties and who had white lab coats. And when they used computers, it was not as easy as today. You had to write complex code, et cetera. So the thought of a secretary ever using, going from the typewriter, to the keyboard was seen as an impossibility. It was seen like, what well, these people can never use computers, right? All right, so these are just facts. So I had to create a system that could be usable by the secretaries and it had to have all of those features. You see, it had to have the inbox, the outbox, et cetera. It couldn't just be all oh, just text message. They needed all those features because you, you gotta understand the inter-office mail system was used for business communications to get grants, to for legal issues, for hiring people. It was the mainstay of business office communications. So I was asked as a child to convert that entire system. So. It was a amazing opportunity. It had never been done before. And I had this opportunity to do that. And so I set to work after I made that list of features, literally programming all of those features. Now remember, by the way, here's those, let me go back to this, uh, share the screen. Yeah, so remember, this was a physical mail system. And by the way, here's some other scenes of how the mail was processed in those, those days, inner office mail system. So I ended up writing 50,000 lines of code. And you have to understand, I was a very hardworking kid. I wrote all that code myself. Um, I used to work until two in the morning on my parents' kitchen table. They gave me one of these big, wasn't even a laptop, it was probably this big. I'd lug it home on a 1200 baud modem to connect and work until the wee hours of the night while I was still going to high school. And I wrote this code in Fortran programming language. You can see what it looks like. And I named this system email, okay? Why did I call it email? Those Use those five characters. The reason was the operating system of the day 
only allowed five characters. And E-M-A-I-L, a term had never been used before in the English language. I was the first to coin it. In addition, the first to build all of these features into one comprehensive, full-fledged email system. And I named that system email. So I wrote all the code to emulate that entire inter-office mail system, which had never been done, and named it email. Okay? Those are the facts of what took place at Newark, New Jersey by a 14-year-old kid. All right. And in fact, a few years later, about a year later, my, and you can see here, here's that woman, Stella Alexiak, who's the one who just recently passed away, who made it possible for me to even get this opportunity. Dr. Michelson was my mentor. Here's er, uh, Greenberg, who was my, Erman Greenberg, who was our uh, math teacher. And they came to visit me at the university where I'm describing to them this whole email system that I had created, okay? And in those days, um, you have the Nobel Prize. There was a thing called the Baby Nobles run by a company called the Westinghouse uh, Corporation, which later became Intel. And I was asked to submit my invention to get, see if I could win a Westinghouse Science Award, and I did. And here's that award, and I'm listed there, I Duray. You can see there, it says, Software Design Development and Implementation of a High Reliability Network-Wide Electronic Mail System. Because we had to make it network-wide, it had to be reliable. By the way, we don't have, the, the internet really hadn't taken off, and you don't need the internet, by the way, for email. Get this very clear, because this was, remember, inter-office mail system. So we had one mainframe computer in one location and others, we physically connected them, that was the hardware. And then email ran above that. You don't need the internet for email. Intranet is where email originally started, okay? So I won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards. Again, all this is before I came to MIT. Then I did get accepted to MIT. And by the way, the story of my getting accepted to MIT is I went to a predominantly uh, uh, very wealthy Jewish high school in Livingston. And you got to understand, my sister and I were the only the two dark-skinned kids among the 4,000 white kids. And uh, no one really advised me. No one even told me about MIT. I was only applying to two local colleges in New Jersey at the time, if I remember. And um, you would think my guidance counselor would have told me about MIT, the number one technology institute, but no one did. However, my mom had helped these two women who were basically homeless. They'd been kicked out of their homes and they were staying in our basement little one room place my mom had set up for them. And that one of the women had a friend and he said, hey, you should apply to MIT. And he showed me the brochure, it said Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I had no interest in applying because it looked like a mental institute. And I didn't apply anyway. A week before the application were due, this gentleman came and wouldn't leave. So I you took a pencil and I filled out the application, submitted it, and I get accepted to MIT. I come to MIT into Boston, Cambridge, and I was sort of uh, blown away by the crazy people were there. They looked very unhealthy. These kids looked like they were 90 years old and I had no interest in coming. Eventually my high school physics teacher said, no, 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 you should go to MIT. You will like Boston, okay? And then my high school became very supportive because they get credit for getting a kid into MIT, right? But they were frankly, many ways, discriminatory to help this Indian kid, okay? Um, so, and here's another, and while I was at MIT, I continued to work on that system. There's a picture of me and Dr. Michelson in the front page of the medical schools magazine. So when I came to MIT, in fact, MIT on the front page 
so this is the incoming class, the freshman class of eight, 1981. I mean, the class of 85, but the incoming 81, right? And this is the official MIT newspaper. And on the front page of the official MIT newspaper, um, out of the 1,041 kids, 1,040 kids coming in, I was one of the three kids recognized for one of my high school achievements, which was creating the first email system. And there it is right there, okay? So um, that year, that same year, I was elected freshman body, freshman, pre freshman class president, and I was invited to the president of MIT's home who was aware of my inventing email. And Dr. Gray, um, who was a president uh, of MIT, he was also on Reagan's White House Science Council, a science advisor to Reagan. And he said, look, it's really unfortunate that the Supreme Court doesn't even understand the legislators, don't even understand the lawyers, don't even know what software is. And he told me that in 1980, the year before I came to MIT, the Computer Software Act of 1980 had been passed by Congress, which allowed you to use copyright law, which was really for music protection or, you know, if you wrote a book or a novel, those kind of things, um, to protect creative works that you could use copyright law to protect software. It was called the Computer Software Act of 1980. So I, my parents weren't Bill Gates's parents. I wrote away, there was no PDFs, there's no internet. I wrote away to the copyright office, got the forms, had to pay 10 bucks per form. It's a lot of money for a kid and filled out the forms and um, submitted it. And in those days, it wasn't just a little C, you had to submit all your code. And by, so that means I made all of my stuff public. You also have to understand as a child growing up in Newark in that institution, I wasn't into secrecy like Bill Gates or um, Steve Jobs protecting everything. IBM came to look at all my technology I'd built, I, uh, Hewlett Packard. I gave one of the first conferences. You know, I addressed about 200 medical doctors sharing all of this. And that system was used throughout that medical college. Everyone could observe it. We weren't secret. But when I had to fill out that copyright, I was actually submitting the code into the copyright office. So on August 30th, 1982, 40 days till today, okay, I received, here's the official copyright notice, copyright response. And I had to go back several times from the United States Copyright Office officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. So now I have legal protection from the United States government. Not only did I write the 50,000 lines of code to capture all the features of the interoffice mail system, not only was I the first to name it email, but I also get the official copyright. So this is at a time when copyright is the only way to protect software inventions. And that's copyright TXU 111775 on August 30th, 1982. Okay. Yes, there is no controversy as, uh, so here's the th point. Thank you, JC. So let me ask everyone. I wrote all the code to capture every feature in the inner office mail system. In fact, here's the checklist I'll share with you that we have right here. Okay. You can see right here. So here was what the inner office mail system had, and my code had all of those features, okay? And by the way, the inventor of email.com site documents all this. All of these features my system had, every one of those features, carbon copy, blind carbon copy, registered mail, uh, attachments, printing mail, exporting mail, group management, post 
every little feature was here, okay? And I've put up all the code here too, so you can go see. You can go witness all the email code that's now in the Smithsonian, by the way. So all of the code samples for all of those features, every feature you see in the system as we know is email, I was the first to code and create, okay? So there's no, so I wrote all the code, named it email as a 14 year old kid and got the United States copyright. Let me ask anyone, this isn't even a gray area, it's black and white that I created the first email system. Is that clear? All right, but it's, it's time that on the 40th anniversary, all of you know these facts because what occurs uh, shortly after this is gonna get more interesting, okay? And by the way, um, I to my Indian comrades in India, they particularly should listen carefully because for far too long, Indians have been brought up to think that, you know, dark people can't invent anything. It's a racism that's created among Indians. In fact, Indians uh, tend to be some of the most racist people and don't take this the wrong way. It's been something that's occurred because of colonialism, which has basically manipulated people to think that they can't produce anything, that they can only be good slaves and workers, okay? But anyway, there you go. So I wrote the code, named it email, have the US copyright, the first United States copyright given to the, for email at a time when copyright was the only way to recognize software inventions. So there you go, all right? So all of this occurred, except for the copyright, which I got at MIT, after I went to MIT, but the invention was created prior to my coming to MIT. And by the way, we have to remember, we're not talking about simple exchange of text messages. Those old computers, you know, the mainframes could do the simple exchange. In fact, that was capable on radio type back in the 1930s. So I'm not claiming that I invented electronic messaging, which is a transfer of messages through electrical and electronic devices, which goes back to Samuel Morse. I'm talking about email, the system. That is what I created, okay? I hope that's clear. Someone's saying I'm frozen. John, am I frozen? I don't think so. Um, so that's what's clear. So I want everyone to, so now we're gonna move to the next portion of the talk. So you understand my journey as a kid to the United States, the education I got, that's the second part, and then the actual invention of email, okay? Great. So now let's fast forward. That was 1980s. So I went through MIT, finished my degree in electrical engineering, computer science, um, left MIT's, um, created one of the first uh, equivalents of PowerPoint, which we sold to a company called IBM, came back to MIT, did two more degrees in mechanical engineering and uh, visual design. And then I started my PhD in the middle of my PhD. In 1993, I won a competition. I had my second life with email, which is I created a technology to automatically sort email rapidly because you have to understand email between 1978 to 1993 was really used in the office environment. You didn't need the internet. But in 1993 when the World Wide Web came, people started copying what I had created and they created web-based email systems, right? That's when Hotmail, Yahoo, AOL, and email started explosively being used as a consumer application after 1993. Organizations like the White House are getting lots of email. So I had actually created a problem. So all that email that was coming in 
could not be read by humans, particularly at the White House. So the White House ran a competition to see where their technologies, which could automatically read that email and sort it. Long story short, in my PhD work, I was doing work on artificial intelligence, and I ended up winning that competition. In the middle of my PhD, I left MIT in 1993, and I started a company to automatically sort and route and answer email. It was called Echo Mail. Completely my second life in email. I thought I'd only do it for three years. It was my another invention. Ended up doing it for 10 years. And then I uh, grew that to a very large company. And then I came back to MIT to do my PhD in a field called systems biology in 2003 to seven. Right. So I kept inventing, kept doing companies going in and out, started a company called Cytosol. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. In 2011, my dear mother, here's a picture of her, what was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. And that disease, she didn't tell me, was only going to give her about three months to live. And before she died in a suitcase, in the Samsonite suitcase, she had meticulously saved all of that stuff, my computer tapes, my code that I had done back in 1978, okay? And, and she had saved all of it. And it had been a little bit, you know, getting old, but nonetheless, there was a copyright notice. All of that stuff my mother had meticulously slaved, saved. The, um, a friend of mine knew the editor of Time Magazine, the technical editor, technology editor, Doug Ameth. Doug Ameth, now this is in 2011. So this is almost 33 years later. I wasn't out there pounding my chest, wanting credit for the invention of email. I was brought up to be very humble, okay? For better or worse. But Doug Ameth, the editor of Time Magazine came and reviewed all the material, still to this day, the only journals to look at it. And he wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. This was on November 11th or 15th, 2011. So in 2011, now the world knows, wow, uh, email was invented by a 14-year-old kid. His name is Shiva Ayadure, and it goes worldwide, okay? First time I really got global publicity for this. Right after that went public, the, the, um, the Smithsonian National Muse Museum of American History contacted me. This is the number one museum in the world. And they said, Dr. Shiva, we would like all of your materials to, it would be a great honor for us to have it. Another museum called the Computer History Museum called me. I decided to give it to the Smithsonian. And on February 16th, 2012, I was honored. I don't have some of those pictures here, which I can dig up at the Smithsonian, uh, where all of my uh, materials were accepted. It was a great American honor by the US government. Another US government honor, not only the copyright. Now you would think on that day, would have been a great day to celebrate um, this event. In fact, a Washington Post reporter wrote this article, an African-American Washington Post reporter, Emmy Kalawale, wrote an article called B.A. Shiva Ayadure, inventor of email, honored by Smithsonian, okay? And that evening, I did a, a report with her where she did a bunch of videos, which we can dig up and play for you. And we'll, we'll make this whole month email month, John, okay? <laughs> And um, that article goes out, and you would think this should be an amazing thing to celebrate the American dream. Here I'd come as a 
low cast, dark skin, untouchable out of Newark, New Jersey, working, and I'd created email. But what ended up happening was something quite profound, okay? What ended up happening was this. A newspaper called Gizmodo, which is um, run uh, by, hold on, I don't think I shared this. I don't think I shared the Washington Post thing. Let me share this here. So this was in the Washington Post. This article comes out. And this sparked a huge conflagration. Because when it went into the Smithsonian, it was like a new skull had been found in Africa. And what I didn't know was during the 33 years where I'd been a good, humble Indian boy, the military industrial academic complex, the defense companies were rebranding themselves into the cybersecurity market. And they had found a guy who looked like a nerd and they had rebranded that guy as the inventor of email. And all he did was use the at symbol to create a caveman version of Reddit. Okay, that's it. With simple text messaging, he spent about 15 minutes writing, but I didn't know that. So when this went into Smithsonian, you had racist attacks on me. People call me an asshole, a dick. Okay. And this was done by a, a media group called Gawker Media. So they called me all these names. Dick, asshole, all these things. And in fact, one of the blogs said this curry stained Indian should be hanged by his fingernails. It says, what a fucking shameless cretin. He should be hanged by his curry stained fingernails as he shouts, let me down, Sahib. I was meaning no harms. Let me down and I will invent you a nice vindaloo, chocolate cake, and then lined up against the wall and strangled with a dothi. This was the kind of stuff. And I want everyone to look at this. And I particularly want the Indians to look at this because even after this came out, not one Indian said anything. I want everyone to look at this. This was in the United States in 2012. This is not 1940s US. It's not 1920. It's 2012. And I really want the Indians to look at this. All my four degrees at MIT didn't mean anything. All my achievements didn't mean anything. And by, by the way, in 2012, I'm running my company Cytosol full-time, and I'm also teaching a class on system science at MIT, which by the way, people pay tens of thousands of dollars and at Truth Freedom Health, all of you guys can get it for pennies. So I'm teaching the most popular elective at MIT and thousands of calls come into MIT saying, how dare this guy say he invented email? Fire him. So I'm being barraged. My reputation, I mean, you have to understand, up until that point, MIT had me on the front page for inventing many things. My Fulbright scholarship, the email system, Echo Mail. But no one at MIT even stood up for me. Okay. Crystal said, if I saw that, I would have had your back, Dr. Shiva. Exactly. But you have to understand, we've created a bunch of pussies, excuse my language, in academia. And in fact, among the Indian community. Sorry to say. I don't think a Jewish person would allow this kind of stuff to happen to one of their Jewish people. 
But for some reason, Indians will take a beating and we'll talk about that. And they're okay with it. So this is what occurred to me at that time. Now you gotta understand, and who was behind all this? Who was behind all this? Who was behind all this was a racist historian by the name of Haig. Thomas Haig out of University of Wisconsin, a racist bastard who you see in academia, people like to own fields. They write the papers and they like to be the expert. And this quote unquote racist expert had already written the history of email. And my evidence was going to throw his whole history off. Like again, a new skull being found in Africa, which set the origin of humanity in a different world. And so he called me a fraud and all this stuff. They hadn't even looked at any of the materials. But he was a promoter of the military industrial academic complex. In his view, all great inventions come from the military. And the Smithsonian, by the way, had promised me that they would display all my material, what they yet have to do. And the Smithsonian gets scared because, again, they're a bunch of academic little weasels. And they said, well, electronic messaging predates email. And I don't know what that meant by that. I never claimed I invented electronic messaging. I created email. But this guy, Thomas Haig, in these institutions was close buddies with the military industrial academic complex. And who do I mean by that? This company called Raytheon. On the front page of Raytheon, which is the number one defense contractor in the world, they had just acquired a company called BBNN. And I didn't know this. They were advertising themselves as the inventors of email with the at symbol. So think about this. A multi $100 billion company was using the at symbol, advertising themselves as the inventors of emails using a picture of this nerd guy. And they were doing a Madison Avenue type marketing campaign because many of the defense companies at that time were moving away. Missile sales were coming down. They were heading into the cybersecurity market and they wanted to project themselves as the inventors of email because then when they applied for government grants, the government person would say, oh, you invented email. We're going to give you the grant. Well, it's bullshit. They didn't invent email. At best, this fool, Ray Tomlinson, by his own admission, he says, I only did 15 minutes. I took an old program added the ability to add text to the bottom of a file. That's not email. At best, it's a caveman version of Reddit or caveman version of Facebook post. I created email the entire system. So this is what was going on. There was a huge mafia, military academic mafia, who was unleashing all of this help. Okay? So here I'm at MIT. No one is coming to my aid. I went to one of the eminent professors who... Noam Chomsky, who was one of my advisors and who knew that I was also a fighter on campus, fighting against racism, fighting for poor people when I was an undergrad. And Chomsky went through all the material and he was the only academic who put this out there. He says email was invented in 1978, okay, by a 14-year-old working in Newark, New Jersey. The facts are indisputable, okay? Noam Chomsky weighs in on Ayodere's invention claim. So he came out. Okay, but you got to understand when I used to go tell the, the truth, people say, ha, 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 you're like Al Gore. They did not want to accept the facts that a kid, a dark skinned immigrant kid who came from nothing in Newark could actually invent anything because they've been brainwashed to think all great inventions come after you go to MIT, after you go to Harvard and you drop out. So you could be a, a nerd like and you have to look like a nerd. You have to have these glasses and you have to have a beard and you have to be hunched over and you have to talk very nasally, right? That's a nerd. Then you can be an inventor. 
but I was an athlete and I was, you know, reasonably, you know, not nerdly looking and I could do all this. So that didn't fit. And this is where the real racism comes in. It's not black or white as we'll talk about, but the facts are that it was black and white that I created email. They created a controversy. All right. So what ended up happening was I had to, at this point, start recognizing that no one was going to fight for me. I had to fight for myself. And in the middle of this controversy, by the way, and I want everyone to watch this set of slides. I'm going to show you. It's going to blow your mind. A guy called Walter Isaacson. Walter Isaacson is the head of the Aspen Institute, was a head, one of the most liberal, woke, elite organizations on the planet. I think he's former head of the Wall Street Journal. He's the one who wrote the book on Steve Jobs. He's known as a great liberal writer. In the middle of this controversy in 2014, remember this started in 2012, every day I'm being hammered. No lawyer wanted to take my case because they said, ah, ha, ha, you invented email bullshit. They didn't want to believe it. Walter Isaacson, in the middle of this controversy, writes a book. And the name of the book is called The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. Author of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson. So Walter Isaacson writes this book. Now, let me read again the title of this book. How a group of hackers, um, uh, geniuses, geeks, and um, geeks created the digital revolution. Let me ask anyone, is email not part of the digital revolution? Is email not part of the digital revolution? Yes or no? Is email not part of the digital revolution? Obviously, okay? But Isaacson leaves no, any mention of email in this book. I'm not mentioned. In fact, he leaves email out of this book. And this is supposedly one of the greatest scholars of our time. What he does include, and these are the people he includes who are the geeks, the geniuses. And I want everyone to look at this. This is it. These are the people. And tell me what pattern you see. These are the people's pictures that he has in his book. Do you see the pattern? Everyone see the pattern here? These are all the people, yes, including a white woman. So these were the people included. I just want people to see this. This is this great writer, a woke white man, liberal elite, Walter Isaacson, talking about that an email is not discussed and you don't see a picture of a dark-skinned kid, all white men, and even a woman. That's allowed. But there are no brown people. There are no yellow people. Nothing. Okay? And this is a book in plain sight of all these people claiming they're, you know, they're the woke elite. Okay? But this is what the book included. And this is right in the middle of the controversy. It's almost like he was commissioned to write this book. And the book ends by putting this old white guy, okay, who's called Vannevar Bush. Now, check this out. This is where the story comes together. Vannevar Bush 
is a former president of MIT who left MIT in the 1940s to start, guess which company? Raytheon. Vannevar Bush went to start Raytheon. And a very important scholar wrote an article at the time saying that when Vannevar Bush started Raytheon, that's when we destroyed ac academics because that's when the collusion between the military industrial complex and universities became one, okay? So again, and in this book, Walter Isaacson attributes all great inventions to the military industrial academic complex. And by the way, everyone listening should share this video with everyone, everyone, with the military industrial academic complex, okay? And he says all great innovations come from the triangle of military on one leg with big academia like Harvard, MIT, Yale on the other leg. And then the next leg would be big business, okay, industry. And that is a golden triangle. And these people, all those white people, and by the way, this is really not white people. You're going to realize this is deeper than this. These are all elite white people, okay? All of these people, okay, are part of that military industrial academic complex. In fact, to be clear, when I was at MIT, I was a model minority. They were, MIT would love to put me on their front page, right? Because they could say, oh, we're about inclusivity, diversity, because I was within that triangle. But when I said email was done before I came to MIT, you become a pariah, you become an outcast. But this is a military industrial academic complex. And this picture of that 14 year old kid who did invent email, you see, he doesn't belong in that triangle. This is a problem. It doesn't compute for them because this entire hegemony is based on pummeling money into this triangle, okay? Because there's billions or trillions of dollars that flow here, taxpayer dollars. Surely if email was created outside of this triangle, and by the way, just to give you an idea, when I was working that university, I was paid nothing in year one, nothing in year two. In the third year, I was given $1.25 per hour. So when you add it all up, probably less than $5,000 went into the creation of email. Those guys were spending tens of billions of dollars creating anything. So the invention of email in Newark, New Jersey took pennies on the dollar. These guys spent a lot more money and they beef up their own bullshit that they are the only inventors. Okay? So that's the reality. Now, what's interesting is Wikipedia, I heard just recently unlocked my page. If you And you can't still change anything. People, sincere people, they read the facts and they would go on Wikipedia, try to change it. And look at, look at one of the Wikipedia senior editors wrote to me and he was so upset. He said, I seem to have stepped into a mess by accident, okay? As an experienced Wikipedia editor, I looked at the email article and was surprised that you hadn't received credit for your contributions. And by the way, the, any credit they give, they try to diminish what I've done. They, they don't want to give me all the credit, even now. Since I've had a great deal of experience writing Wikipedia articles, this guy says, I got right to work and added several suitable additions to provide credit to your contributions. Right away, my edits were deleted without discussion, not edited to improve them, but flat out deleted. 
And he was saying this was so volatile. The email article was so volatile. Because this is a kind of behavior an editor encounters when editing an article on the Second Amendment, abortion, or other extremely hot topics. The response to my edits have included personal attacks, calling me ignorant, reckless, and the like. Although most editors have been less insulting than that, they have generally been aggressive and rapidly deleting my admissions. Think about that. My article, the article on email, became more volatile as a Second Amendment, abortion, or other extremely hot topics. Why? Why is that? Why was it hard just to document the freaking facts? Why? And that why is because this innovation, the truth about the invention of email, goes at the heart of what it means to be a human being. Because the invention of email did not occur at MIT, at Harvard, or Harvard dropouts, or at the military, or at Silicon Valley. It occurred outside of that. It occurred in places that everyday people work in, in Newark, New Jersey. Now, what these people did not know was that they didn't know that I've not only was I a programmer and a scientist and an athlete, and, um, but I was also a fighter. I've been fighting racism all my life, fighting for other people all my life. When I was at MIT, I started the first student newspaper. I organized food service workers. I made sure more blacks, more women, more poor people, black and white, were able to get into MIT. I fought for a dean, a black dean who'd been fought, you know, wrongfully terminated. MIT had investments in racist South Africa. I organized a 5,000 person protest. And you can see this picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. There's about 5,000 people here. And we marched on the president of MIT's office who's right here. And I challenged him to call for divestment. And then I organized protests when a friend of mine was held in Sri Lanka. So what these guys didn't know, and this is me at my PhD graduation, when it was not fashionable to ask for the United States getting out of Iraq. So what these people didn't know was I have been fighting all my life for others. But when all of this abusive attack took place on me, no one was there to fight for me. And I had to go deep within myself to connect, not with me, because that was, was too hard to fight for me, I had to connect with that 14-year-old boy. And I realized that I had to stand up and fight for that boy, which was me. Because no one was fighting for that dark-skinned 14-year-old immigrant kid who had come out of the caste system in India in Newark, New Jersey, and who had indeed invented email. And that I would have to now take all of my fighting experience and bring it there. And that ended up in me spending day and night during those two years, it was like a PhD project. My very good friend, Lorraine Minetti, literally came up from Newark where she was born and knew me as a kid and stayed with me for about a year and cooked and cleaned for me, took care of me so I could build this site, The Inventor of Email. So I built this entire site. It's a PhD thesis. I'll take you to the live version of it. If you want to see it, it's here. Let me bring it up. And you will find on the site everything because I had to literally go through all my stuff and I had to document everything having to do with the invention of email. Okay. And that's what I ended up doing. So let me go to that site here and you can see it. It's right here. Okay. And if you go to inventor of email, I encourage everyone to go there. You'll find the inventor of email site and everything is up here. 
the copyright notice, all my code, the definition of email, everything is here. So I built this at that time. And that was my way of getting my head in order and starting to fight, not for me, but for that 14 year old boy who did invent email. And I've spoken to women, by the way, who've been raped. And they will tell me, you know, when you get raped, you start thinking you did something wrong. And here I'm being attacked. And I start thinking, wow, maybe I'm lying. Maybe I didn't invent email. Maybe someone else did it before 1978. So I had a very good student in my class at the time, Devin Sparks. Poor kid spent, he was so upset with what was going on with me. He spent day and night in the MIT library and he went through every document written before 1978. Because we were trying to find out had someone else used the word email, had someone created email, right? What, you know, was I being a liar? You know, was there something else that was being done? And so Devin spent all day doing that. And lo and behold, he finds a document written by a gentleman by the name of uh, by the name of David Crocker. Now, David Crocker, you have to understand, was a guy who was attacking me in the press day and night. He said, "I'm an expert. I'm from that time. I, you know, he was one of those old white dudes with the lab coats." Um, email was a collaborative thing. No one person could have created. By the way, this is how these guys work. This is how these racists work when they want to take away credit. They basically try to say, oh, it was a collaborative. It was all one big kumbaya. No, it wasn't. I did email myself. And he said that, you know, no one person could have done it. Now, what he, what Devin found in the bowels of the MIT libraries was a document, this guy, David Crocker, I call him Croc of shit, had written in 1977, a year before I created email. And he was writing a report on the state of electronic messaging and applications. And he made it very clear, and I'm gonna bring it up right here, and this is a smoking gun, that he basically says, at this time, this is a 1977, right about a year before I began creating email, no attempt is being made to emulate a full-scale interorganizational mail system, which is the interoffice mail system. He says, no attempt. The fact that the system is intended for use in various organizational contexts and by users of differing expertise, he's talking about secretaries differing who can't use the key, keyboard, typewriter, right? A keyboard makes it almost impossible to build a system to respond to all users' needs. So this scumbag, David Crock of shit, who was attacking me in 2012 all over the media, forgot he wrote this document where he said they weren't, they thought email was impossible to create. Everyone following me? So we found this document and we started sharing it. He started getting afraid. He started calling my old mentor, Dr. Michelson, and trying to figure out a way that we could quiet me down. But we, they didn't quiet me down. I went off and I built that website, as I just showed you. And then in 2016, you know, so I believe there's a God that exists. Um, something interesting happens. I, uh, this magazine, Gawker Media, that journal, that rag, which had been attacking me, calling me an asshole and a dick and all those horrible names, right, was sued by a guy called Hulk Hogan. And I was in Hollywood at the time. And Hulk Hogan had sued Gawker because they had put a sex video out on him, violating his rights. It was defamatory. Hulk Hogan had sued Gawker Media for $145 million and he'd won. Okay. 
He'd won a major judgment and was appealed. The lawyer representing Hulk Hogan was a guy called Charles Harder. I went to Charles Harder. He was in Beverly Hills, charges, you know, 1100 bucks an hour. And I showed him all my material. He goes, oh, my God, you invented email. He goes, the facts are pretty black and white. He took on my case on contingency. Most lawyers do not do that because he saw the strength of the facts. Charles took on the case and we filed our lawsuit for $35 million. A few days after I filed my lawsuit, Gawker Media claims bankruptcy. They didn't have money. We drove them into bankruptcy. I get appointed the chairman of the bankruptcy committee to sell, this is a karma, Gawker to a new company called Univision. Out of that deal, I got close to a million dollars. It was a big victory. By the way, none of the mainstream media reported it. Gawker Media pays Dr. Inventor of email $750,000 settlement. And Gawker also has to remove all those articles. Big, big victory. Okay. Yes, it was indeed awesome. And none of the mainstream media ever reported on it, including whoever, anyone you want to talk about. And there's a reason for this and we'll get to it. Okay. This was after four long, hard years. I win this lawsuit and we won. We settled another lawsuit against another guy who had put a bunch of crap up trying to make it all of a gray area. Well, you know, copyright this, you know, anyway, we invented email. It's, it's black and white. There's no gray area. So we win, win this lawsuit. But the question comes down to why a friend of mine, Kevin Ryan, who is the head of Business Insider, said, you know, what's fascinating about this entire story is why is there even a controversy? He goes, that's the real story. It's not the fact you invented email. He goes, that's black and white. You wrote the code. You've named it email. You have the copyright. Okay. I love what a fighter you are. Stay strong, never give up. Thanks, Cheryl. I won't. But the issue became, why was there a controversy? And the reason there was a controversy is because of this. And I want everyone to really look at this diagram. As I mentioned earlier, it's because this boy, the 14-year-old boy invented email, doesn't fit this fucking triangle. I was part of it when I was at MIT, and I was their golden boy. But when I said I did this before I came to MIT, it puts a big ratchet in this entire scheme of things, right? And in fact, when all this took place, we created another site, which I, after we won the lawsuit, if you go to whoinventedemail.com, we created a site to really educate the whole public. And it really documents what is email, and then we give the six facts. We say, what is email? How the internet pioneers thought it impossible. What I created, what this guy Tomlinson did not invent. He simply created a caveman version of Reddit. And then we ended up getting quotes from eminent people going through what is email, okay? And supporting everything we've done. In fact, a major lawyer, Stephen Chow, made it very clear, hey, look, he's one of the leading lawyers in the world on copyright law. He said, look, he, he, did the, he did the job. Had patents been available, he would have done that, okay? He says, in August of 1982, Stephen Chow says, the U.S. Copyright Office of the Library of Congress registered Chiva Idre's email code and user's manual. According to its records, these were the first works registered under the title email, preceding the next such registration by two years. Dr. Idre's registrations and deposits showed to the world 
his reduction to practice of his email system. These registrations were remarkable for an 18-year-old student. That's when I got the copyright involving non-trivial procedures. And he goes on to say, had patenting path for software been considered possible in general in 1982 and generally, particularly the MIT community, I have little doubt that Dr. Idre would have pursued it, okay? One of the important things we did on this website is Dr. Michelson um, and others put together a document, which I'll show you, which literally lays out, let me go back to the top here, which lays out what the real dynamic was. And now we're gonna talk about why. Why was this controversy there? Why was there even a bloody controversy, okay? And that is revealed in this document right here called the Invention of Email in Newark, New Jersey. Why was there even a controversy? By the way, how's everyone doing? Are we getting late here? People still with me? Arun, all right? All right, people okay? Why was there even a controversy? And that brings up to this, okay? All right. Yeah, Google still claims Lake Tomlinson and they in fact, they manipulated the search results recently, okay? It's bullshit, they're racist. Google's a bunch of racist scumbags. So let me read this right here because a guy who runs Google is a good Indian fellow who's gotta be a good Indian lackey, Sundar, Sundar Pichai, okay? By the way, Pichai in Tamil means beggar, okay? That's what Sundar Pichai is. The chairman of Google is a beggar, okay? Sorry to say that's what he is. He's as we say with my black friends, a house nigger, okay? That's what he is. Okay, so this article written by Professor Michelson, Professor Nightingale and others lays out the real issue and I'll read it to everyone, okay? And this is what it says, the invention of email in Newark, New Jersey reveals fundamental truths about the nature of innovation and exposes the quote unquote histories and propaganda of the quote unquote golden triangle of the military industrial academic complex whose multi-trillion dollar brand, that's what they are, advertises itself as a source of all revolutionary innovations. Such propaganda are constructed and packaged by those consecrated like that racist historian, Thomas Haig, as historians who honed this branding to brainwash humanity that war brings good things to life. This cabal anoints and exalts its quote unquote innovators, predominantly whites and a few persons of colors who pledge to its hegemony of innovation. The indisputable facts of the invention of email in 1978 by V.A. Shiva a 14 year old dark skinned lower caste Indian immigrant prodigy working as a research scholar at UMDNJ Newark, New Jersey defy such histories. The boy's invention, the first electronic system, was a system replicated the complex and myriad functions of the inter-office, inter-organizational paper-based mail system, inbox, outbox, et cetera, which he named email, was motivated by his desire to create and to do the quote-unquote impossible. Those guys thought it was impossible. Email was invented to digitize the entire system of civilian office communications, not just to exchange text messages reliably for military battlefield communications. Those guys were just doing simple text message, and I'll show you what of the military people told us. Email was the first end user software application that made the digital revolution accessible to ordinary people who had never experienced a computer keyboard or terminal. Aya Duray's evolution as an inventor and scientist continued far beyond email. The point is I didn't need email to validate me or the credit. I was doing many other things. And being exalted as an 
far beyond email to his completing four degrees at MIT, receiving worldwide acclaim and being exalted as an innovator during his 33 years at MIT while within the triangle. See, I was within their triangle. He served their needs as a penultimate, ultimate ambassador and quote unquote model minority. That's how Asians are treated as, right? To enhance their brand's image of inclusivity, diversity and equality. However, when the Smithsonian requested and obtained artifacts documenting email's origin in 1978 in Newark on February 16th, 2012, and when Idra accepted this great American honor, he unwittingly pitted himself against their brand. The cabal unleashed disinformation claiming emails created before 78. When these claims were debunked and Idra continued sharing facts, the attacks escalated to a public lynching. That's what it was revealing an insidious side of racism that exalts persons of color when needed and expels and annihilates them when they challenge false histories and propaganda. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to understand, as long as I was at MIT and I was on their front page, they were quite happy to have me as a golden boy. But they don't know that I'm, I fight for truth and justice, and they didn't think that I would go expose their lies when I said, look, email was done before MIT. You see, now I was the model minority who could no longer be used. That's the real racism. Okay, this is a real racism. And we'll get back more into race, race discussion here. Okay. Revealing an insidious side of racism, which exalts persons of color when needed and expels and annihilates them when they challenge false histories. Email did emerge from their collaboration, but not from their triangle, but organically in a local and indigenous ecosystem of a small medical college where a brilliant young boy, committed teachers, a loving family and a dedicated mentor solved the civilian problem. Does everyone see? That's the real triangle. The real triangle is a loving family, a mentor, and you get access to some infrastructure. This was a small medical college. It is in that triangle where great innovations emerge. And by the way, it was a 14-year-old boy who also invented TV, Philo Farnsworth. He worked on a small farm in Idaho. He saw how the cows did this pattern. He got cathode ray tubes. He built the first TV, RCA, stole it from him. They started manufacturing it, even though he had the patent. It took him 19 years to win that lawsuit. By the time he won it, they'd already made a ton of money. He died an alcoholic. It took 60 years for him to get credit in the halls of Congress. It was a Michigan mechanic who created the, the windshield wiper, the automatic windshield wiper, which MIT professor stole from him and so on. So the point is all great innovation really comes from this triangle. And it says, exemplifying countless other innovations across millennia inspired to advance life, not retrofitted from technologies intended to maim and kill. Such histories are deliberately not document, documented to perpetuate lies that war is good and to mask its rapacious profits. Documenting the invention of email in Newark, New Jersey, therefore is a historical imperative towards breaking this diabolical trance to reveal a fundamental truth. Innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody, and war and profit are not its necessary and required impetus. So there is the reason that these guys were so bloody upset. They were upset because email was created before I came to MIT. It was created outside of that military industrial academic complex. Does everyone get it? I hope everyone's getting this. Email, the reason that this upset them was had I created email, if I was at MIT, it would have been absolutely fine. But I did email before I came to MIT for pennies. This is a fundamental issue. This is a real issue. And let's talk about racism. I told you that I wanted to talk about racism. And 
Walter Isaacson is a real racist. He's racist not only because he just featured white, but he's a racist because he probably hates most people or working people. He's a racist because he's also a hypocrite. Now, everyone thinks this is when George Floyd, everyone thinks typically this is what you call racism. Let me tell you, the problem is that there is a real racism and the right wing doesn't think racism exists. And the left wing wants to reduce racism to just about black and white, don't use the N-word and you support affirmative action and you're done. But there is a real racism. And the real racism is what I wanna wrap up with tonight. The real racism is putting people in these little boxes. It's putting people in these little boxes. You see, I was supposed to be in a little box of a good Indian. What really bothered them was that they thought when I was at MIT, putting me on the front page, giving me all sorts of awards, that I would be a good Indian, that I would never go against MIT and expose their lies. I was not being a good Indian when I told the truth about the invention of email. And not only that, a friend of mine said, what really bothers him about you, Shiva, you don't back down. You're not like a, okay, Gandhi, okay? You see, Indians have been colonialized to being beaten on the head and thinking it's good to get a good beating by this fool called Gandhi. Well, I'm not a Gandhi. I'm not a Gandhian. I believe you fight. And that's not being a good Indian, okay? But the real racism, and they white people are treated racist, brown people are, but the real racism is putting people into these nice little boxes, okay? So for example, this is racist, blonde jokes. A blonde woman must be dumb, quote unquote dumb. A blonde woman can't be brilliant. So you see racism show up like this. If you look like this, feel like this, you, you know, people do blonde jokes. This is about black people. Black people like to eat watermelon. They must have nappy hair, okay? That's another racism. You know, or pictures like this, Al Jolson. Or, you know, making fun of Chinese people. Chinese people must all just eat Chinese food and they must just talk like this, right? And they all know Kung Fu. That's racism, putting people in their box, right? Or Joe Dirt, all white, white rednecks must be Klansmen. They all must be white supremacists, okay? This is racism. This is, or if you're an Indian, you must be Apu from, you know, South Park. I think not South Park, whatever it is, you know? Simpsons. Simpsons. Or you must sit under a tree and meditate all day and, and, and talk very slowly and be meditating and uh, only concentrate on, you know, raising your kundalini. All the other great heroes of India are tossed aside, people like Savaji or Kantabamam, these people who fought. So this is a real racism. And those in power do this every freaking day. They put people into little boxes. And if you step out of your box, you will be whipped and you'll be lynched. I stepped out of my box because I was unwilling to back away from the fact that email was invented in Newark, New Jersey. Was I saying, okay, you called me an asshole and a dick. I'm just going to sleek away. That would have been fine. You're right, Massa. But I didn't do that. I wasn't willing to just keep meditating. I wasn't willing to take a beating. And that is a real racism. If a woman is not supposed to be a surgeon and, and she speaks up a certain way. Well, to me, it could be a white woman. How she's treated, that's racism. You see, the elites want to bucket everyone into little boxes and they want to remove people's true humanity. 
They want to destroy people's true creativity. The truth is innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. And innovation, creativity, whether you express it in art, music, inventing email, is an expression of the human spirit. And these devils want to genetically engineer innovation into certain institutions. Oh, if you go to Silicon Valley, then you're an innovator. If you graduate MIT or you drop out of MIT and Harvard, then you can be a nerd and you can be a, an innovator then. But you surely cannot be an innovator from Newark, New Jersey, where all black people are in a small medical college and you're 14. If you, maybe if you're Jewish, I'm sorry, don't take this anti-Semitic. But it seems like if you're Jewish, and it's a, it's a sort of a racism. If you're Jewish and you have a last name with a steen in it and you have blonde hair and blue eyes, then you can do all sorts of things. Or if you're a Brahmin. Hate to say that. I bet you if, my, if, I, if I painted my face white and I had blonde hair and I had blue eyes and I changed my name to Ayadure Steen, I'd probably be on every stamp on the planet. And I really have to ask that question. And I respect my Jewish friends to probably ask that question too. But it seems like certain people are the only ones who can innovate. And that's a caste system. So we've come full circle where the United States has become a caste system. Earlier this evening, I wrote a letter to the MIT Board of Trustees because not one professor at MIT except Chomsky stood up. I wrote to the Board of Trustees. Now it contains blacks and whites. It's a multiracial aristocracy. And I said, are you going to correct your wrongs? Are you going to fix this problem of finally recognizing the true inventor of email and recognize that inventions don't need war, that you don't need to maim and kill people to get great innovations. That's the fundamental question. And if you really look at what's going on in this country right now, the racism that's affecting whites and blacks and brown and yellow, it's really a class situation. I mean, if you look, if you're a, a black woman walking with your Louis Vuitton bag, you actually get treated better than a black person who's different. I remember walking to Whole Foods about several years ago and I was wearing a raggedy sweatpants and sweatshirt and I walked and I had shaved and I got my bag of food and they stopped me and they said, oh, we want, we want to see your receipt. They didn't believe I bought it. So it's based on how you look, you see? This is a real racism today and it's destroying the world because what it's doing is it's only saying, intelligence, humanity, creativity can only be limited to this very, very small group of people. No one else can innovate. Think about all the great innovations that we're missing. I mean, I invented email for 5,000 bucks. How much money do we spend in Silicon Valley? These venture capitalists get billions of dollars, tax dollars from pension funds, and then they sit in their plush offices and they distribute it to 100 companies. And then one Google comes out and they high-five themselves. They make hundreds of billions of dollars, and they say, oh, isn't it great? We did innovation. No, you didn't. You did shit. You just put it into your friends. You took money from this pocket, and you put it into this pocket. And what's going on in the United States? And by the way, an innovator should look like this, too. You got to look like a pocket-protecting nerd, okay? Or this fool who creates nothing, Bill Nye. Ray Tomlinson, they literally plucked him out of a casting call. The guy didn't invent email. It's the biggest racist fucking lie on the planet. And it should be destroyed. What's going on in the United States as a result of all this? Look what's going on. We are culling together innovation that we're not really, we're reducing the wealth to only a few people. Do you know a $1,000 emergency would push back many Americans into debt? 
70% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account. Meanwhile, this six hundred, this freaking nerd, Bill Gates, who actually didn't invent DOS, he stole it because he had this little network with his mom and dad, wears his little glasses, right? Bangs whoever he can get, gets, hangs out with Jeffrey Epstein. That's all fine. But in the last two years, 600 plus billionaires increased their wealth by $400 billion, all insider trading. And look at all these guys. They grew their wealth by... 434 billion, just these four people. This is what's going on. Six trillion dollars Trump printed, Obama printed four trillion, and all this money got sent to the stock market. Meanwhile, people are waiting in lines all over the world. You have food shortages. And in the middle of all this, MIT, which claims that they're for poor blacks and Harvard, who are so concerned about minorities, this is a reality. This is not a typo. The median net worth of a black Bostonian today is only $8, okay? That of a white person in the same area is $247,000, $8. And poor whites are actually getting even poorer. And you can see this, the average white person's income household is $42,000. Now it's down to 22,000. The black household is stated around, black and Hispanic, around 4,000. Maybe even gone up a little bit, but white households adopt by, drop by 50%. So when you look at it, what's really going on is that we're destroying the middle class and the middle class, which used to be the independent thinkers, the entrepreneurs is being reduced. And we have a lot of people at the bottom and very, very few at the top. And this is what happens when you genetically engineer innovation. And this is a trajectory we're headed on. There is a racism, the racism against if you're poor, whether you're black, you're white, you're woman, and if you step out of your box. And that boy who invented email was unwilling to step out of his box. And that boy is today a man who's unwilling ever to step out of his, who will always step out of his box. And today, many of you know that I've taken that energy to create many other things. And one of the things I'm very proud of for having recently created, by the way, I don't know if you guys saw all this, these slides are what I was sharing, right? This is the slides that I was sharing of the thousands of, uh, of the, the fact that income in the United States, at best people only have a thousand bucks in their savings account. $6 trillion is what we printed. $8 is the net worth of a black person in Boston. 247,000 is a white person. It's the most segregated place in the middle of all this woke liberals. And white people's incomes are coming down, gone up. Uh, the, the average white person's low income has come down by 50%. So white, black, Hispanic, everyone's being attacked from a racist standpoint by the elites. That's what's really going on. The true story of the 14-year-old child who, inventor of email is that, that innovation can occur anytime, any place by anybody, but it is under a full attack. And that is why it becomes imperative that we stare, share the story of the invention of email. It is the truth. There is no gray area. There is no controversy. It's been manufactured to diminish you. This is not about even this boy. The history of the invention of email, the truth is about you. Do you as a human being wanna recognize that the invention of email and the controversy that they created really is not about me, but it's about diminishing what it means to be a human being. Because when you create, when you innovate, you exhibit your humanity. And they wanna say only a few people can do it. And when you do that, it brings down all of humanity. We don't produce the wealth we should be producing. 
My latest invention, Cytosolve is one, Echomail, but my most latest one is Truth, Freedom, and Health. Truth, Freedom, and Health, everyone, is fundamentally a system. Truth, Freedom, and Health is fundamentally an invention. It is an invention. It is an invention that will get you out of your slavery. It'll get you smart. It is a technology. It is a platform. And I want everyone to go to truthfreedomhealth.com tonight and become a part of this movement, but more importantly, become a user of the system. As it says here, the man who invented email now delivers the truth for an health system to make you street smart. So you may see things as they truly are beyond left versus right, pro versus anti, and improve every aspect of your life, your body, your relationships, your business, and your world. I'm not gonna go into this in detail, but truth, freedom, and health is also an integrated system. Like email had the inbox, the outbox, da, da, da. We have all these different components, but they're intended to make you smart. So you have a homework assignment tonight. Share this video broadly with everyone. Share the fact of the invention of email with your children. Because we have to fight for the truth about the invention of email. It is at the heart of our struggle because it brings out the foundational fact that those in power are well on their road to creating a caste system globally, that only a few people can innovate. Suresh Kumar says, it is our duty to share the truth about the invention of email with everyone. The truth that innovation can happen anywhere, any place by anyone. Thank you, Suresh. Someone says, one of the great discourse on the implication of racism, innovation, corporates, economic society, and freedom. Yep. And I can't, overemphasize to all of you guys that you have to share the truth about the history of the invention of email because it is a invention that was created by a young boy trying to help women go from the typewriter to the keyboard. It was a liberating technology. It was not about making money. It was not about starting a company. There was no VC funding. I wasn't in Silicon Valley. It was doing something purely for the love of it, which is what innovation was. You know, there's a book you can find on our website called The Seven Secrets of Innovation. We did a whole course on this. I'm not going to reveal all the secrets because I want you to go be part of our movement. But one of the secrets is innovations in our DNA. It's in everyone's DNA. So we have an active set of elites actually suppressing that. They're squashing being a human. So I hope all of you share this facts, become, use, become, the truth, become a user of the Truth, Freedom, and Health system, and learn that if we don't get the facts about the invention of email out there, given how blatant it is, that how many other things are they going to steal? The next thing, your child, if he is, doesn't go to MIT Silicon Valley, he creates something great. He's going to be squashed. So this is a very important struggle to win. And we have to get the story out there. And it is the 40th anniversary of the invention of email. And I hope this discussion was valuable to all of you. And I'll go through some of the comments that people have said. Yep, Bill Gates is disgusting. Jill Jones said, manufactured crisis. They stomp the people down and treat the world as an amusement park. We must all adopt the truth for health system. No more compliance with criminals. Excellent. We need you as senator. Thank you, Silky. You guys know I ran. We won that election, and the Republicans are the ones who stole it from us. We may run again. We'll see. 
Thank you, Dr. Shiva from Allison Wright. Thank you for this video, awesome info. Love you, Dr. Shiva, love you too, thank you. So there you go. I wanna end by saying, look, this the story of the invention of Emo is so powerful. Don't expect Tucker Carlson, who's a jackass, or Joe Rogan to cover this. They're not, they're all part of the establishment. We all have to wake up and realize we have to build this movement bottoms up. We are our own people, our own movement. We have to fight for our rights, our human rights. No one's gonna do it. I had to, it's, it's sort of disgusting that I have to quote unquote promote myself. And I'm really not, I'm just telling the facts. And, and the way these scumbags are when I tell the truth, oh, you're promoting yourself. You're, you're trying to just push yourself, bullshit. Einstein didn't have to promote himself. Bill Gates didn't have to promote himself. Why is that? White people don't. White people who are specifically anointed by the elites. Philo Farsworth, he was a white guy. That's the real racism. You have to be anointed by the historians and the elites. Well, guess what? I'm not like Sundar Pichai. And if you notice right now, all the heads of all the Indian corporations are all Indian guys. And they're all racists. They're the real racists. It's like in colonialism times, the British appointed Indians to control the slaves, just like they did in Africa. They had the Indians. Thank you. They had the Indians. They had the Africans take over other Africans. And, th and they do this in the United States. They have white people control other working class white people. Because if surely if a black person was managing poor working class whites, there'd probably be a, a fight. Okay. So it's class war in many ways. It really is. So the bottom line is that right now we have neo-colonialism. Sundar Pichai, who makes about 250 million, 300 million, he will never talk about this. He knows the facts because he's got to pay homage to his masses. Same with the guy, Twitter, another Indian guy and another Indian guy over Microsoft. The Indians are used to manage all the Indians who are a lot in the IT industry. It's disgusting. There's an article which says that India is the fourth most racist country on the planet. My mom in India told me that, you know, in India, you could get mistreated seven or nine different ways. In America, about three. But it's true. So to my Indian comrades out there, I ask you, wake the fuck up. Wake the fuck up. Let go of all your slavery. And yes, an Indian created email. Indians, oh, did an Indian create email? I don't know. I don't think that is true. I think Ray Tomlinson did. No. An Indian did create email. And that thinking comes from their own slavery. All right, everyone, I think I've shared enough. And I'll, uh, yes, we have shared the truth. It's nothing but the truth. All right, everyone, be well. Have a good night. It is, what time is it, John? It's a little bit after midnight. And uh, we've had about a 200 good solid people. Share this video everywhere with as many people as you know. And remember that email was invented by a 14 year old child, a child. Not an adult, but a child in Newark, New Jersey in 1978. Thank you everyone, have a good night, be well.